my friends, fellow evolvers and curious people everywhere. Welcome to this episode of Being with Sally Wilson. I'm Sally Wilson and I am honoured to have with me as our guest today, Judith Richards, who's the creator of the Richards Trauma Process. Welcome, Judith. Hello, Sally. It's always a delight to connect with you. Ditto, Jude. <laughs> now, for those of you who haven't heard of this extraordinary woman, firstly, she'll hate me saying that she's extraordinary, just, just so you know, listeners. She is a woman of the most incredible strength and courage. And her bio says that she has a history that beggars belief. And it's absolutely true. Um, Judith's wisdom that has been a result of her experience is profound. And she knows trauma, among other things, inside out. So I'm not going to tell you any more about Judith. I'm going to let her speak and tell her, tell you herself. So Judith, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your story? Okay. Um, as you said, Sal, I created TRTP, the Richest Trauma Process, and that's a story in itself. And that came out of my own need, extreme need for my own healing. So I was born the youngest of eight. Um, my father was a captain of industry, but I had three older brothers who were very incestuous. Two of them got me, two of them got my older sister. Um, and we were very Catholic. So did I mention we were Catholic? We were very Catholic. Uh, and we had lots of heads of um, groups of various priests coming through. Um, so, for example, the, the head of the Marist priests in the 60s for about 12 years was Father Peter Guerin. If anyone's had the dubious pleasure of meeting him, uh, he's now deceased and there are so many um, actions against him from survivors of institutional abuse. He was not a nice man. Uh, so there were lots of priests who used to like coming by our house and staying. Um, there were lots of children. Uh, and so I, I, from a very early age, um, became a victim. And I know why that happened. I know how it happened. And I took on the idea that there was something wrong with me. I made good people do bad things. And that became the story of my life until I was a teenager, late teens. And I'd basically introduce myself. Hi, I'm Jude. I attract violent lunatics. What can I say? It's a gift. And so I had stalkers. I had uh, boyfriends who went mad <laughs> and would attack me and, um, and, try and strangle you know so it was the, the usual thing you know lots of violence lots of um dreadfulness and I worked my way up through stalkers and violent lunatics till I found myself with a homicidal psychopath that was into torture and that lasted for about nine years and during that time my son had a very terrible time um with his father anyway that, that's a whole other story but mm -hmm. at the end of it I had this um, child who was in a very bad way and curled in the fetal position for days at a time howling like a wild animal and I also had my own issues to resolve if it was just me I would have topped myself but you know I was a mother possessed I took my son to mental health 
facilities and, and facilitators. And we came home at one stage. I said, they've got no idea. And there is a way and we will find it. And so I took him out of school. And that was the beginning of our healing. Um, and I've always been an eternal optimist for some weird reason. I've always had this driving compulsion that there is a way. There must be a way. And I'll find it. Hmm. And listeners, before this call, I asked, I actually asked Judith, I said, where did your courage and determination and drive come from? And she said it, she'd just always been an optimist. And Judith, do you think that's something we can just choose? Not necessarily, Sal. And I don't know what weird coming together of planets or stars or fairy dust caused it um but i think we do get to make a decision and that decision is pivotal uh, i remember at the point of being on the verge of absolute insanity and making a decision do i just let go and become insane and someone else will look after me which was the easier choice mm. or do I step back from the brink and grit my teeth and carry on? Not that people go insane are taking the easy choice at all. I don't want to infer that. No. But um, there is a choice, I think, to make something of all the dreadfulness or not. And, and I think there's a choice to, to be a victim of that or not. Mm. And victim is a big word with a capital V. But like I used to say to my son, you have a choice today. What is it, victim or victor? Because what happened to you should never have happened to you. It's happened to you. And some people have gone through worse and it's not a competition, but your choice today, because that happened then, but that can wreck the whole rest of your life. What's your decision? Are you going to get let those people take the whole rest of your life? Or are you going to use this dreadfulness to propel you to absolute extraordinary? What's your choice today? And I think that when we are able to sit with our dreadfulness, Sometimes we are lucky to have a guide with us, somebody who points this out to us. But most people, 98% of the population live in blame. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my family say, well, it wasn't your fault. It was that person and that person. I said, no, no. I put myself in those situations. And why did that happen? Because of the early training that I had at the hands of priests and brothers. Um, and I took on the idea, and this is what happens even before we're born, up until the time we're about seven years old, we take on ideas about who we are and our place in the world. So even before we're born, we're taking on ideas of, am I loved? Am I safe? And then we're born, and for some people, that's a life-threatening experience, which colours the rest of their world, that I'm not safe. And then for the next seven years, we take on ideas, some of them from things that someone in authority says, like the parent who says you should never have been born, didn't want you, you wrecked my life, or lesser things like, so um, you only came 10th in the class. Mm. What's wrong with you? 
or you didn't win the Estedford, or you didn't win the horse riding competition. Hello, I expect more from you. Mm. So we come away thinking I'm not enough. Or, or even the little child who one parent leaves. And of course, children are egocentric. They're the middle of their world. They draw a picture. They're in the middle and mum and dad and the dog and the cat and the siblings are around the outside. And if something happens, it's my fault. So mum left because I wasn't enough, because I didn't do enough, because I wasn't good enough, because I was naughty. If only I wasn't naughty, if only I did the right thing, she wouldn't have left. It's all my fault. Mm. And this colours our life going forward. It's, it, this becomes our foundational belief, our foundational program. And you can try to bring up another program. And if it's not laid down, it's not going to happen. It's like trying to bring up um, a music editing video on a computer that you've never downloaded it to. <laughs> yep. It's never going to happen. You can get Word, <laughs> get a document up, but uh, it has to be there. It has to be in the software. And I've found a way to reinstall new software, take Thank out the you. old and reinstall the new. And we have complete choice over that. We yes. can do that as humans. We can tap into the subconscious and into all of that and just uninstall the old program and install a new one. That was going to be my next question. So we're not stuck. We're not stuck. We've picked up as kids with the patterns that we keep experiencing in our lives with even even the self-talk that we hear in our heads that can all be changed and the biggest lie that we buy into growing up is I am as I am I think as I think that voice in my head is what it is I feel as I feel I behave as I behave I have no control over that that's the biggest lie it's the biggest disempowering lie that we buy into because actually we can change it and there is a way to do that. And you just need a few guidelines and you can choose what your programming is. And that will absolutely change the patterns of your life. Because what happens is we take on these programs from before we're born up until we're about seven. And they become our foundational beliefs. And we manifest, and that's in the subconscious. And we manifest what the subconscious believes. Mm. We man And I'll say it again. We manifest... What, the con what our subconscious believes to be true. So if we take on the ideas, everyone who's supposed to love me will hurt me. Well, hello, we'll be a vic victim of bullying and abuse all our lives. If we take on the idea that success is not, it's, it's not safe, it's not safe to stand out and be outstanding, I have to be silent. I, I mean, it's not safe to be seen or heard. And lots of little kids take on these ideas. And we're an adult and trying to have success in sport or in business or in any realm of endeavor, we will have sub subconscious sabotage. And, and it's subconscious. We don't get up in the morning thinking, yep, today I'm going to really sabotage my success. Today I'm going to really sabotage my relationship. Today I'm going to really sabotage my health. We don't get up thinking that. We get up intent on having the most productive day we possibly can, despite how exhausted we're feeling. But this is subconscious sabotage. And where does it come from? It comes from those subconscious core beliefs that were laid down when we were very tiny. And then we manifest what our subconscious believes to be true. Mm. And we can't help it. We're attracted to those people who will abuse us. They're attracted to us. We just happen to get the jobs in abusive, in abusive workplaces. We just happen 
to be a top athlete and we're picked to go, you know, you'll you'll end up at the Olympics, you'll end up as a professional footballer and we have have we pull the muscles, we do our knee, we have injuries so that we can't do that anymore. And because our subconscious's job is to keep us safe and it runs every chemical reaction, every electrical response in the body. And if it says no, well then hello, no, because our conscious mind that we think is in complete control runs the show and science has told us nine, 5% of the time. So all we have to do is reprogram our subconscious. Yep. Not rocket and, science. And Judith, um, it's interesting that you're talking about, you know, athletes and people in that um, operating in that kind of sphere, you know, peak performance sort of stuff, because, you know, when when people hear the term Richard's trauma process, often they think of war zones, they think of the kind of dreadfulness that you experienced. Uh, but I personally so I, I trained with Judith a couple of years ago, a few years ago in the Richard's trauma process listeners and um, I didn't think I personally needed the process because I was, oh, you I were fine. Hello. I was, I was fine. I had a great childhood, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, I'd done well in my career. Um, I was an opera singer uh, for 20 years before I, before I did any of this sort of work. And, um, and it changed my life. And so when, when I work with people who are high achievers in whatever area, it's the same deal. We've all picked up stuff that doesn't serve us, that, that where we're basically uh, unconsciously sort of orchestrating our own disappointment. And so that's this... a beautiful way to say it, Sally. There we are subconsciously orchestrating our own disappointment. Yeah. And when I look back. Because that's just how life is and that's the belief mm. we took on. Yep. And when I look back at my own career, uh, which was fine, but geez, geez, it would have been nice if I hadn't had any of these limiting beliefs going on in my head. Um, and I, I think of, you know, the singers who were extraordinary at auditioning and then fell apart in performances or who just never quite made it, even though they were extraordinary. 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 And that's yep. all about safety and it's all about, it's just, oh, yeah, it's just never going to happen. Yep. And so what actually, what were some pivotal moments for you? I know that, so the process that you now teach and that your team teaches, mm -hmm. um, it came out of your own experience. Can you share with us some of the, the pivotal moments that, that led in their own way to parts of the process? That's a big question, Sal, because it came over about 10 years. But That's it came really itself. over about it came over about 50 odd years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really. But um, one of the pivotal times was after my son was okay. And I didn't have to be strong for him anymore. I was living by myself and I woke up one morning with my mind missing. And uh, that was an interesting experience. And that lasted for about 15 to 18 months. And during that time, I learned more than I'd ever learned before. It was a real blessing. I kept away from the medical establishment. I kept away from pharmaceuticals. 
I certainly hid myself from society so I wouldn't be rounded up in an ambulance and taken off to a psych ward because I thought that would be the end of me. But during that time, and I won't go into how it happened, but during that time I put together TRTP um, as a step-by-step process by taking myself through it. I, I had half of it already there from the 10 years previously or eight years previously. And I put it all together during that time. During that time when I lost my mind, I went into several personalities. I was living in hallucinations, in psychosis. I was known in, in the little village that I lived in, Mullaney, in the hinterland in the of southeast Queensland from the Sunshine Coast. And I was known by the teenagers as the mad beanie woman. So I was insane. I would walk up and down the street talking a thousand miles an hour, saying the same thing again and again and again uh, with the old beanie and oversized tracky decks that were dirty. And And yet, Judith, you had this clarity in amongst that what I I imagine, I don't know, I imagine was just chaos, internal chaos. You had the clarity. It certainly was. Yeah, I couldn't, I wouldn't even try. I trusted myself to put the jug on to make a cup of tea, but I didn't trust myself to put the stove on because I'd put the stove on and start cooking something and then I'd dissociate and just walk away and the next thing there'd be smoke billowing and I'd have nearly burnt the place down. So I didn't trust myself to use the stove. But um, that's one reason I stayed away from pharmaceuticals and from hospitals. So I knew there was a way and I had to have some tiny part of me clear enough to find it. Mm. And so it became more clear as I went along. And then people saw me all of a sudden get well when I brought it all together. And they started bringing me loved ones and I put them through the same step-by-step process that I put myself through and they'd get well. And then more people came, then more people came. And then people started to ask me to teach it. And I said, I don't teach. And I said, you do now. Because I just thought it took me two years to understand that I was doing something different. Mm. So what sorts of timeframes, firstly, were you, what was the timeframe for you to get well as you're partly figuring this out for yourself? And then what was the timeframe for these other people to get well who you helped? I was insane and coming out of insanity by using this process for about 15 to 8, 15, 16, 17 months. Mm -hmm. The people who came to me, uh, I used one session Mm -hmm. and they would get well. Wow. Um, When I started teaching, I broke it down to three to make it easier for people to follow it. Yep. And you've mentioned before, I'm going to call it a pivotal moment. You, yeah. <laughs> where you were, this is, I, I think, I ha, I'm not sure that I'm completely clear on the timeline of when things happened, but this was obviously, this was earlier in your life mm-hmm. where you were in hospital mm-hmm. and. Ah. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that? I was, uh, I had to, after all that happened to me, I had to have a lot of surgery and very, very major surgery. Um. I lost a lot of my insides and everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. So I had, you know, like, so I had bowel resections and all sorts of things and my lungs collapsed and I had pneumonia and I had from all the wound sites, cause there were lots of them. I had cellulitis and I had, I had 
just everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. I was full of golden staff. They kept opening me up and draining it. And I was in so much pain and nothing would help. And a nursing sister in charge of the ward came by, said, we've given you everything. There's nothing more we can give you. We can't stop the nausea. We can't stop the vomiting. I had tubes down into my stomach because I was making too much of a mess projectile vomiting. So I had that nasal gastric tube in. Um, and was all sorts of other tubes. And she said, you just have to go somewhere else in your mind. And this was key. Because we're, when we're in such misery, <laughs> we have to go somewhere else in, my, in our mind. So I went somewhere else in my mind. And I was very gifted as a tiny child that I had an older sister, nine years older than me, who taught me about my imagination. And every morning we'd tell, our, tell each other imaginary stories about where we went during the night. We weren't really asleep. We just left our body there and went on these adventures. And so she taught me, she's now a doctor of literature and um, uh, a highly awarded writer, um, teaching at one of the universities. But, but she taught me how to use my imagination. And she was taught by an Aboriginal woman called Sandra, mm. who used to tell her stories and take her to different places in her imagination. So I was very very um, blessed with that experience. So I had a rich imagination. And so I realised then when she said that, that that was the key. And I remembered something I'd read about how the imagination, what we richly imagine the body, and sub, the body believes. And I, there were lots of people dying all around me and I thought, I've got to get out of this hospital. I'm going to die <laughs> and every day someone would die just nearby um, so I gave myself 24 hours to get out of hospital and I harassed the staff for a list of what my body had to be doing in order to be let go and they got very cross with me and the person in charge came in and told me you're the sickest person on a ward of 70 people you're going to be here for months just get used to it please give me the list of what my body has to be doing for me to get out. Anyway, eventually they gave me a list just to shut me up. Because I was very quiet because I could hardly talk because I had no lungs or anything. But um, I imagined all these teams of workmen in my body, like um, workmen in my lungs blowing up like hot air balloons. So <laughs> inflating my lungs and bilge pumpers in my lungs, getting rid of all the fluid. And all around my body, I had these teams of men and all night they'd report to me. So we've got to get there. We've got to get there. Anyway, uh, I was out of there in 24 hours. Mm. And uh, the doctor just sat on my bed, threw his papers at me and said, how the hell did you do that? I said, I just used my imagination. Now let me go. And I've used that for various uh, issues that I've had as a result of everything that happened to me to resolve issues such as hydrocephalus and all sorts of things. Yeah. We are so much more powerful than we ever believed. And our body and our subconscious will believe what we richly imagine. And we can shift our body. Um, you know, Bruce Lipton wrote a very famous book just up there on my shelf, <laughs> the biology of belief, showing that when our belief change, belief changes, our physiology changes, uh, 
when our perception of what's going on around us is one of the first epigeneticists. You know, first there were the geneticists saying, here's your genes, you're messed up, that's going to be your history. And he was one of the first to show that it's our perception, it's environmental triggers via our perception that causes genetic expression. And our body believes what we richly imagine. I mean, you can, there've been all these, uh, there was a, even Deepak Chopra's book, there was one, uh, there was a study done in India of people with blocked arteries and they gave some stents and surgery and some just imagined the artery clearing and guess who had the best results? Mm. Those who imagined the artery clearing. We are so much more powerful than we ever, ever imagined. Does it always happen? No, because we live in some very toxic environments with lots of carcinogens and everything else around. So we mustn't cancer shame or illness shame people but it is extraordinary the number of people who imagine away tumors and disease states yep and i remember hearing you talk about how you'd also on the flip side of it help people imagine the perfect golf swing (laughs) (laughs) when i started working with people And people in that little township were bringing me, you know, friends and uh, loved ones and friends, and they're all very traumatized. And I thought, you know what, I've had enough of trauma, really. I just wanted to work with really upbeat, motivated people. And I thought, who will I work with? I thought, sports people. Then I thought, well, I need an income, so they have to be able to afford to pay something. So I thought, professional golfers. There we go. And so I started working with professional golfers on their subconscious core beliefs because I remember working with this golfer who was a very high-profile guy, I won't mention his name. And he'd gone from winning all these tournaments to nearly winning and then losing. So he had taken on a different belief about himself. So I said, when did it begin? He told me. I said, what was going on around then? And he told me. He'd done something lacking in integrity in a big way. And so he'd taken on the idea, I don't deserve to win anything anymore. I'm a bad person. I'm a bastard. And so that's what happened. So we changed that and just had him imagining winning tournaments, imagining the swing on this hit, this ball and that ball. And, yep, he was, uh, within a week, he was back. Mm. So we can use that not just in golf, we can use that in relationship, in parenting, in all sorts of things. Yep. And uh, guilt and shame is another topic that we can Ooh. go into, self-blame, uh, another time because it's it's worth addressing. There oh, oh, yeah. oh, no, no courtroom in the world could dole out a more difficult penalty than what some of us put ourselves through yeah every day and so judith what two questions what does trtp as an organization look like now what is your vision okay so at the moment we've got 300 odd practitioners that we've trained in the last six years since 2014 july 2014 this year we will train 150 or so next year we will train 
some hundreds, um, our end and and our how it looks now, it's beautiful. Mm. <laughs> we people do the eight week training and then they come into our extraordinary TRTP practitioner community, and the culture of our community, the culture of our business here in the workplace, uh, with the people who are working with us, the culture of all we do is one of kindness, generosity, and egos left at the door. And anybody who does not fit that culture, we show them the door. Uh, we, we take it very seriously. We protect our community so that it's always safe. Mm. Um, and from that community, we have our we are doing the research. We have within that community academics who are driving our research projects. Uh, people like Dr. Petrina Barson, who's a GP who teaches at the Melbourne University, teaches the medical department there. People like Dr. Jennifer Rice, who taught at one of the big Melbourne universities in psychology, psychology research design. So with, you know, people like Rosemary Boone, who can look at an EEG and tell you if someone has PTSD because of the changes in brain function. So we have within our community these extraordinary people who are driving a couple of different research projects. So uh, we will prove the process. We're talking with medical department at Melbourne Uni about partnering with us. We're talking about in, in that research, we're talking with Phoenix Australia, which is one of the biggest PTSD research organizations in Australia. We're talking with them about partnering with us in our research. Our end point is to change how mental health is done on the planet. Our end point is to have thousands and thousands of practitioners internationally and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people step through to the other side of their pain. There is no reason for people to be in pain now. Does this suit everybody? No. It suits those who are motivated to be well, who throw themselves in. And if people do that, there is no reason for them to be in the pain of anxiety, depression. You know, people think, oh, anxiety is the issue, depression is the issue, PTSD is the issue. No, it's not. They're symptoms. What are mm -hmm. they symptoms of? They're symptoms of dreadfulness that's happened to us that hasn't been so when that happens you know the emergency services in the brain fire no 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 we release cortisone adrenaline something dreadful has happened it shuts down all the systems that aren't required for fight or flight so all the energy is sent to our arms and legs so that we can fight or flee so what are those systems that get shut down it's the guts the immune system the frontal lobe but the other part of the brain that gets shut down is the librarian that part of the brain that when an event is over, it takes that event, puts it in the correct filing cabinet in the warehouse of memory and walks around way and says, well, that's done. And that doesn't happen. So instead it gets stored in the subconscious like a videotape. If it's happening now, it's happening now. And the subconscious runs every chemical reaction, every electrical response in the body. And so the body continues to fire as if that's happening now. So it stays in fight and flight, the hyper-aroused state of anxiety, or it states that stays in the shutdown freeze state of depression. It also can go into other things. But so anxiety, depression, PTSD, they're just symptoms. All you have to do is turn off those videotape loops, wake up the librarian and say, oi, Put that in the library of memory. Shut the door on that big warehouse. And it's basically, if you've ever done a mobile phone reset, factory reset, it's what happens. The whole physiology is reset. 
and we go back to being a regulated system so that after we have a distressing event, because life will still happen, after a distressing event, we don't have to do anything. The body and the subconscious regulates everything and brings us back to calm. We don't have to go and sit on a mountaintop in the Himalayas for five weeks doing a meditation retreat. The body within minutes will bring itself back. It's not ours. Yeah. Will bring itself back to homeostasis, to that calm state. We don't have to do anything about it. We don't have to consciously make it happen. It just does it. So TRTP puts that switch back in and causes the body to go back like a factory reset of a mobile phone. Yep. And and we're talking three sessions for most people. Yep, that's right. They're longer sessions, admittedly, an hour and a half to two hours. Yep. And just from, from my perspective, um, you know, I have the great pleasure of working with people and applying this process and the transformations are so quick. They happen before your eyes and people often say to me, isn't that just really tiring, that work that you do? <laughs> and I say, it's, it's elating. It's exhilarating. It works. It works. And you see these extraordinary transformations. And I remember... Um, my second client, this is years ago, she came in with a DAS score, that's a depression, anxiety, stress score, extremely severe in every area. So it was in the 30s somewhere up there. Um, and by our the end of the third session, it was one. And even that one, she was like, oh, yeah, maybe yeah maybe one it changed her life and for the first time in her whole life this is somebody in their late 60s uh she didn't feel subservient to other people yay go her so they go her because there's fight flight freeze appease mm. and so that appeaser was turned off as well yep yep if i show you that i'm on your side and if i do everything you want then you won't hurt me and you'll love me yep it's extraordinary. And, and this chat is very timely because of the Mental Health Commission that's just um, come yes. out a couple of days ago, yes? That's right. Um, and I'm just bringing it up here mm. on my other device. <laughs> um, Victorian, the Victoria's Mental Health System, there's been a commission, Victorian Mental Health Royal Commission, and their final report came out two days ago. And it has announced... Uh, the chair, the Royal Commission's chair, Penny Armitage, says the mental health system in Victoria has been failing for decades. It operates continually in crisis mode and it has, to quote, catastrophically failed to live up to expectations and must be completely rebuilt. Uh, so, yeah, it's not working. Yep. It's not working. And so... You know, Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again, expecting a different result. Well, there are people dying. There is There are children turning up at emergency departments, self-harming and suicidal. And what we're using doesn't work. TRTP is fast, it's effective and it's long-lasting. I have followed some people for nine years now. Mm. And they just get better and better. And those, I used to specialise in violent, angry men, violent, angry men brought against their will. 
So they weren't exactly a compliant bunch, but I've followed most of those for nine years and they have not had one enraged, violent outbreak in all that time, not because they were trying not to and they'd done all their anger management mm. lessons and they were using their techniques to manage their rage. They don't need to manage it yeah. because it's gone. You know, it's a funny thing. Hurt people hurt people. Take away their hurt, they stop hurting people. Take away their hurt, they stop being angry. Mm. It's not rocket science. It's actually quite simple. Yeah. And so, Judith, if people want to find out more about TRTP, where where do they go? They go to the website, the, and take a cut lunch for this one, people. <laughs> it's, it's a long website address. <laughs> T-H-E, the Richards. I'm Judith Richards, plural, Richards, the Richards Trauma, T-R-A-U-M-A, process, P-R-O-C-E-S-S dot com. And you'll find lots of information there. Um, go to what is TRTP, watch some videos about what it's about. If you're looking for a practitioner, go to the practitioner directory and see who's a match for you, who you're comfortable with. You can often tell a lot by somebody's photo. Mm. And a wonderful, um, a wonderful place to go also is the TRTP YouTube channel. I That's highly right. recommend it. Forgot about that. Thanks, Sally. Uh, go to YouTube and just key in TRTP channel. Yeah. And you'll see a picture of me with red glasses and go there and click on the second page, which is videos. And there's lots of stuff there. Yep. Including Sally on who had joined me, who has joined me on some webinars on there about performance and trauma and performance and TRTP. Yep. Thank you. Ju thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sally, and thank you to everybody who happens to hear this. And Sally, I just wanted to say, is on our teaching team. She's an experienced practitioner who mentors new students coming in. Uh, so if you're looking for a practitioner, I could recommend no hire. So um, thank do you. yourself a favour, as Molly Mildrum would say. <laughs> do yourself a favour. Do yourself thank a favour. <laughs> Thanks, Sal. Always thank gorgeous you, to connect with you yes and i and i'm i'm still stuck on the optimism thing i think we need to talk about that some further a bit further so hope i'll have to think about it <laughs> yeah me too me too so hopefully we'll have you on as a guest talking about different things different things in in more detail if you're up for that oh absolutely i'd love to sally and Great. and to anybody who's listening lots of love and go gently thank you thanks so listeners, thank you again for tuning in and being a part of this great community. And we would love it if you were to give us a review or a comment. These, you know, this information is important. And like Judith said, it can save lives. So that's what the review or comments are about. <laughs> it's not about promoting us. It's actually about helping other people. So if you have a moment now, you can do that by doing a search in your phone's podcast app for our Being With Sally Wilson podcast, uh, the search functions bottom right of the podcast app. You can click on the orange Being With Sally Wilson thumbnail, scroll down to ratings and reviews, click the five stars. Um, and you can also share this podcast, um, this episode with people who you think would be interested or people who need it. Um, and you'll see where to do that on the app. 
I have a question, Sally. Can we share it it to Facebook? Can we share it to Facebook? We can share the episode to Facebook. Absolutely. Thank you. I would like to do that. So the way we can do that is by going to my website, which is www.iamsallywilson.com. There's a podcast page and this episode is on that page. You'll see it there with Judith's name. So also feel free to connect with us on social media and, and that way you'll also be able to ask our guests questions ahead of time. So that's a great opportunity. Thank you again, everyone. That's enough from me. And I look forward to meeting with you over the waves next time.